We turn to Revelation chapter 12 today. Going to begin reading at verse 7. Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and there was, they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, guide us now as, as we open your word this morning? Father, we thank you for what we have learned as we have journeyed through this great uh, revelation of Jesus. And that's what it is, a revelation of Jesus. Uh, Seeing him and his glory, his majesty, his power, his justice, his victory. Lord, thank you for the victory that we can enter in today by faith. The victory that Jesus has won for us. And I pray that you would guide us into your truth, Lord. Your word is everlasting truth. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In the first few verses of this chapter, John sees what appears to be a hopeless situation. A woman is about to give birth and a powerful dragon is ready to devour her baby as soon as he is born. She can't run away. She can't hide. What are the chances that this baby will survive? See the drama? Ready to give birth, and here's this huge red dragon ready to devour her child. But then we come to verse 5 and we see that the baby that is being born here, the baby that the dragon wants to destroy, this baby is no ordinary baby. Verse 5 says she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So who is the baby in this vision? It's obvious the baby is Jesus. The great red dragon we know already is the devil, and yet Jesus won the battle. He fulfilled his mission. He ascended back to the Father, and he rules all the nations of the world. 
This was the plan of the Father, and in, and in spite of how it appeared, there was no way that this plan was going to be thwarted. It was not going to be stopped. Now, we can be thankful that Jesus could not be defeated, that the dragon could not destroy him because we are completely dependent upon him for our salvation. In Adam, we lost the battle against Satan, but in Jesus, we are victorious because he overcame, we overcome. We sang, there is victory in Jesus, and that is the, that is the theme of this chapter. In spite of the opposition of the dragon upon Jesus, in spite of his opposition to us, there is victory in Jesus. I want you to notice three things in this passage about the victory that we have. First of all, in Jesus, we have victory over Satan's deception. Satan's deception. Satan's rebellion against God ended up costing him dearly. He and his demons were cast out of heaven. And John describes that that warfare going on between Michael and his angels, warring against the dragon and his angels. And we're told in verse 8 that they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. And just so we know who this dragon is, John says this is the serpent of old, this is the devil, this is Satan, and he is the one who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels thrown down with him. Now, when, the, when Satan was thrown down to the earth, he is very, very angry. Verse 12 says, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But then woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So the devil continues his attack upon God by trying to turn people away from him. And one of the ways that he does that is through his deception. Verse 9, he is described as the one who deceives the whole world. Now think of that. The one who deceives the whole world. He is the one who blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. He is the one that comes as an angel of light. Deception. That's what Satan wants to do in this world today. And if you want to know how he deceives, just go back to Genesis chapter 3, how he deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden because... He hasn't learned anything new. He just continues the same old tricks that he used back there in Genesis chapter 3. It started with the temptation to question the Word of God. Genesis 3.1 says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Notice putting a, a question. Did, did God really say this? Can you really trust this God? 
Can you really believe that His Word is true? That what He says He will do, He will actually do? By questioning what God had said, Satan was aiming to put doubt in Eve's mind concerning God's Word because he knows that as soon as you begin to question the Word of God, He has you right where He wants you to be. And I don't think I need to tell you that we live in a culture today that is questioning the Word of God. Questioning the Bible. Can you really believe the Bible? Can you really trust that the Bible is the Word of God? And many people today do not believe that the Bible can be trusted. And so instead of bowing under the authority of God's Word, people place them above God's Word as if they are wiser than God, they know more than Him, they can decide for themselves what is true and what isn't, as if they are the final authority. When you hear something from the Bible and you think, ah, that, I, I can't believe that, then you place yourself above the Scriptures rather than under the authority of the Bible. That's our culture today. Now, you can't believe that. So there was the first part of that deception. Did God really say that? Question the Word of God. And then the next step was to not just question God's Word, but to deny God's judgment. Satan went on to say, well, the, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. You surely will not die. So the first doctrine of Scripture to be openly denied, right here, that God will bring judgment upon sin. And this lie of Satan is still in our world today, isn't it? Now, you've probably heard all the ways in which this lie comes through. There is no such thing as hell. Jesus isn't the only way to be saved. God loves everyone, so everyone will go to heaven. But by simply denying that there is a judgment isn't going to make it go away. They will not make it a go away. So it started with a question. And then a denial of God's judgment. And then the temptation was to really defame the character of God. The devil said, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. As if to say, God does not want you to have that. He's holding back on you. He doesn't want what is best for you. And that's why He told you not to eat of that. But if you do, if you eat of that fruit, you will be just like God. I think this is one of the biggest lies of the devil that our culture has swallowed. People act like they are like God. They decide what is good and what is evil. They decide what is truth and what is not. And as a result of that, it's chaos. There's no standard of right and wrong because everyone does what is right in his own eyes because, after all, the final authority is me. 
And all that matters is what I think. Who are you to tell me that what I think is wrong? That might be right for you, but it's not right for me. We've swallowed that lie so much in our culture, and it goes back to this, that we think that we are God, (laughs) we can decide for ourselves what is right for us, as if there's no standards of right and wrong. Let me give you an example. The Bible says that God created us male and female. But today there are people who say, I will decide if I am male or female. I mean, how ridiculous can that be? But that's the end result of this kind of thinking where I am the one who decides what is right and wrong. Not God. Not His Word. I don't bow under any authority because I am the authority. And what I say, that goes. I don't care what anybody else says. So Satan is the great deceiver. And sad to say, with most people, he is winning the battle. He is deceiving the whole world, except those who are willing to stand under the authority of God's Word. We don't need to lose this battle. This is a battle that we do not need to lose because we have the truth of God's Word. And when we know and believe the truth of God's Word, we will not fall for Satan's deception. Remember what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness? What did he do? He quoted Scripture. It is written. Three times when Satan came with his temptation and his deception, Jesus said, it is written. That's where we must stand. On God's Word, it is written. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17, that our battle against the devil and his forces is waged through what? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's how we battle. We go back to the Word of God. So I ask, are you using your sword? Ever had sword drills when you were in youth group trying to find a verse the fastest? Well, that's what we need to go to, the Word. In Jesus and in His Word, we have victory over Satan's deception. The second thing we notice in this chapter, in Jesus we have victory over Satan's accusations. One of the attacks the devil brings against the believer comes in the form of accusations. In fact, the devil is described in verse 10 as the accuser of the brethren. Many titles given to Satan in Scripture, but that is one of them. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is always pointing his finger at you who love the Lord, accusing you of your sin. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. And notice this, He who accuses them before our God day and night. You'd think he'd get tired of that, but he doesn't. He is our accuser. Now, there's several examples in Scripture of Satan accusing the believer. 
Job, for example. But an interesting one was read from Zechariah chapter 3 this morning, where Satan is accusing the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And if you look at verse 3 of that chapter, you will notice that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Now, this is obviously a vision that Isaiah or Zechariah is seeing. And so the filthy garments symbolize the fact that Joshua, even though he was a high priest, was a sinful man. In this court, he was guilty because he's standing there with, with, with filthy garments. Like all of us, right? Our sin. But notice what the Lord did about Joshua's sin. Verse 4, He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away and will clothe you with festal robes. In other words, Joshua's sin was forgiven and he was clothed with garments that picture the righteousness of Jesus in which we stand today. Jump down to verse 8 because you'll see how the lesson is described here. Verse 8 of Zechariah 3, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, in your Bible, in my Bible at least, the American Standard, it capitalizes my servant, the branch. And the reason why it capitalizes my servant, the branch, is because this is a reference to Jesus. Jesus. And God is telling Joshua that he is going to send Jesus and he, listen to this, he will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. What day was that? The day that Jesus died on that cross, right? When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Finished. The price has been paid. The sacrifice has been completed. Salvation now is offered to us freely. One final sacrifice through the cross. Sin was atoned for. So the accusation that the devil brought upon Joshua, it would not stand. There would be no condemnation because Joshua's iniquity was taken away. The judge declared him not guilty. That's a courtroom scene that we're seeing in Zechariah chapter 3. And the courtroom scene is a, is a common one in Scripture. Our call to worship this morning from Romans chapter 8 is another one of those. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, well, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also?
give us all things. And then Paul asks the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Well, we know who the one who condemns is, right? That is the accuser, Satan. But Paul says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. See the picture? you got the accuser, the, condemned, the one who condemns us. You have us standing before God. But you've got an advocate. You've got someone who pleads your case. You've got someone who intercedes for you. And God is the judge. And if God is the one who justifies, does it really matter if Satan condemns and accuses? No, it doesn't. Jesus is our advocate with the Father, and He's never lost a case, right? And He does not claim our innocence. He does not say to the Father, don't judge them, they are innocent. There's no way that He could claim our innocence because we are guilty. But He took our sin, He took our place. And as He intercedes as our advocate before the Father, Father, I paid for them. I died for them. I shed my blood for them. Not guilty, the Father says, because the price has been paid. That's the message we see in in Revelation chapter 12. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And how did they overcome him? Verse 11 tells us. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. And because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Through the blood. That's how our accuser is overcome. And when we confess that Jesus is our Savior, we enter into the victory that He won for us. And Satan can accuse us all he wants. God says, you are not guilty because my son died for you. He shed his blood for you. Luther had a dream one night in which he stood before God and Satan was there accusing him of sin after sin after sin. And in his dream, Luther began to despair. All these sins and he couldn't couldn't deny it. But then he remembered The cross. He remembered what Jesus had done for him. And in his dream, he turned to the devil and he quoted 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. (laughs) And there was peace. So when Satan comes to accuse, what do we do? We point him to the cross. We remind him of what Jesus Christ did on that cross because that's where Satan was defeated. We overcome through the blood of the Lamb. I remember one man saying, when Satan accuses me of my sin, he said, I thank him. And I tell him, that reminds me of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And he said, Satan does not want to hear that. They overcame him through the blood of the Lamb. 
So in Jesus, we have victory over Satan's deception and over Satan's accusations. But then thirdly, in Jesus, we have victory over Satan's persecution. If you look at the end of John's vision in this chapter, we see how Satan then begins to persecute the people of God. Verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But notice how God cared for the woman who gave birth to Jesus. Verse 14, But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of detail here, but the obvious lesson, we have an enemy who wants to destroy the people of God. Israel in the Old Testament, us today. Peter says he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But notice how God cares for his people. And, and we see again some, some Old Testament images that remind us of what God did in the past to encourage us today. Notice the reference to the great eagle. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness. So that reminds us of Exodus 19, verse 4, what God did for the people of Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So there's that image from the Old Testament, what, what God did with the people of Israel, saying to the people of today and us, I'm your protector, I'll care for you, I'll provide for you. And then we have this image of of water, the serpent poured out water like a river and to, to sweep away the woman. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and, and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Uh, some see here a picture of, of how the, the little boys in Egypt, when they were thrown into the, uh, or Pharaoh said, throw them into the river, how these... Uh, Ladies that helped uh, the, the Israel women in birth, how they refused to do that. God's protection that way. Others suggest it's the passage through the Red Sea on, on dry ground, uh, sparing them from what the water could have done. Either way, it illustrates that God protects His people. God cares for His people in times of persecution. He's with them in those times of, of trouble. So does that mean that we'll never suffer? No, um, Job suffered. Many of God's people have suffered, but only what God allowed. Does that mean that the believer will never die as a martyr? <laughs> no, that's, that's not true as well. But what it does mean is that God will bring His people safely to their 
promised land. As God brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, brought them to that promised land on eagle's wings, God releases us, forgives us, takes us out of bondage, brings us through this life, this wilderness. And what's the promise? Uh, safely bring us to glory. Second Timothy chapter 4, I love this. Verse 17, Paul says, after describing all that he went through, he said, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The roaring lion seeking to devour us. God protected him from that. And then verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. I love that. He will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. I remember my mother's funeral. The pastor said, you know, you've been at an airport and you've stood there and you've watched a family member get on that plane and down the runway and taken off. And you have people standing there saying, there she goes. <laughs> there he goes. And then there's another airport where people are standing there waiting and a plane comes in and a group of people say, well, there he comes. There she comes. And he said, that's what it's like for the believer. We say goodbye as the believer dies and leaves this world and there they go. And yet in glory, there's a throng of people saying, ah, there he comes. There she comes. Why? Because Jesus is the victor. Jesus will bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom, a safe landing. Right, Paul? Safe landing <laughs> in glory. And oh, what a day that will be. There is victory in Jesus. I trust you know Him today. You can say, He is my Savior. He paid the price for my sin. There is no condemnation. Why? Because of that cross. That old rugged cross where Jesus died and shed His blood for us. Victory in Jesus. My Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the victory that is ours in Jesus because of that cross. And Lord, may we stand today in that shadow as we look to our Savior, the one who has won the victory for us, the one who has overcome and by whom we overcome as well. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.